Please turn with me in your Bible to 2 Samuel 12. We are continuing our study of David. If you had been with us, or if you have been with us throughout this series, often, if not most of the time, David is a picture of Christ. We, we look to him. He's our hero. As you know, last week and continuing this week, he's not the hero. Um, he's fallen and he's struggling and his entire kingdom has taken a turn. So last week, if, if you weren't here, was, we discussed David and Bathsheba. How really in one short, one night stand, his entire life changed. Right? And then he murdered Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. And from at the beginning, at the beginning of our passage, he uh, he seems calm and collected and okay. And so we're going to look at a really amazing passage that shows us something about sin that I'm I'm going to urge you to believe me on, and that is this: one of the chief properties of sin. And by the way, yes, you joined us on another Sunday where we talk about sin a lot. It's not every Sunday, just 98 percent. One of the chief properties that I want you to believe me on is you don't know all of your sin. I, I think most of us think, yeah, I'm a sinner, and yeah, here are my things I'm working through. But what this passage is going to reveal to you is actually probably your worst sins, you have no idea they're there. You just are not aware of them. So in this passage, Nathan shows up and does a masterful thing, one of the greatest passages in the Bible to wake up David to the actual sins he's committed. So let's look together at chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would, have, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord, to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, 
I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. This is the word of the Lord. What a heavy passage, Father. Yet it's an encouragement because you graciously show us our need, our need for Jesus and our need for covering. So I pray this morning we would feel your mercy even as we dive into such a difficult thing. Amen. There are certain movies that, there's only a couple that I can think of, that it seems like the idea behind the movie is to trick you at the very, very end. And I've talked about this one before, but I'm going to talk about it again. The Sixth Sense is one of those movies. The Sixth Sense is a movie where um, it's about a little boy who has either he's insane or he actually can see people who have gone and passed away. I'm trying to think about how to word things healthfully. Uh, And so he has this problem, and Bruce Willis is a psychologist who's there to help him through this problem. It's a really great movie, and if you haven't seen it, I'm going to ruin the end for you. You had like a decade. So at the very end of the movie, you find out Bruce Willis, who's been helping him, and the movie's been going along, and there's this, there's this actual plot where he's helping a, a daughter who's passed away, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You find out at the very end that all that time, Bruce Willis was actually himself already dead. And you can only see it once like that. Because once you've seen that, I was on an airplane traveling from L.A. back to Oklahoma City. I mean, I'm just sitting there with my jaw open going, I couldn't believe it. I looked to my left and my right, and they're like both passed out, you know, asleep. And I remember watching it the second time with Emily and her family, and it's just not the same. In fact, what you're doing is you're like, how did I miss that? Like, it's the same movie, but now it makes total sense. How did I fall for that? Why did I not see it? That's what I have to feel like David must have felt like here. That's what we feel like. When our sin is exposed, oftentimes it's not, yeah, I knew that, I just didn't want to repent. Sometimes, if not often, as we'll see in this passage, it's, I had no idea. Like, maybe I knew, but I didn't know. But I was really operating as if that were not even true of me. So I want you to invite you this morning to understand that what grace is doing in this passage, what grace does is it reveals your sin to you first so that it may heal your sin. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, how grace reveals and then heals our sin. Uh, Four things we're going to look at. Grace reveals, it convinces, it deepens, and it heals. Okay, those are our four points. Uh, First of all, grace, uh, it pursues or it reveals uh, our sin. Right there in verse 1, you have this, this interesting, just few words. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. The Lord initiates this. David is doing what David does, whatever that is. He's just in his castle. And Nathan is the one sent by God who comes to him. Furthermore, Nathan has a plan to convince David because David, for whatever reason, is completely unaware. We're going to talk in a moment the specifics of the, of the plan. It's amazing the way Nathan unpacks it. But just the thought, you would think David would be like this. I know why you're here. I just murdered somebody, right, like a week ago. But he does. He says, yeah, come in, sit down, let's have a conversation, let's put some coffee on, let's talk. 
it's astounding that he can't see his sin. And I, just, I want you to just sit in that for a minute. When I was a kid, I remember trying to look in the mirror and you look away in your eye, you know, you can't see yourself. And just, I want you to, I want you to, do you think you know what you look like? Because not one of you has ever actually seen yourself. Have you ever thought about that? Well, I've seen myself in a mirror. That's not the same thing. It's a reflection. Well, how about the videos, the photos? Not the same thing. You have seen a stranger this morning more, with more detail than you will ever see your own body, your own person. Like, that's just weird. We could stop right there and just mind blown. Um, so for me, that's weird. So we need people, right? Hey, you got food in your teeth. Are you the kind of person that someone can tell you that right there, you know? Are you mortified? Are you like, thank you, yes. I needed to know that I had toilet paper stuck to my shoe. Like, you need people in your life to come to you, not just for your physical appearance, but for your soul, to say, do you know? Do you know how you come across when you talk like that or when you act like that? We need Nathans in our life. We need church, sermons, scripture, Bible study, accountability partners, spouses, children, parents, etc. We need people who will come to us and tell us the things that we do that are harmful. And the, the challenge is we need to be ready to be those people. Um, I, I, there's a term that came out of the ancient church. Augustine is credited with it. Felix culpa. Felix means happy. Culpa means fault. Sort of this idea of like, I'm excited to find my faults. How many of you, raise your hand if you're excited to find faults in yourself. Come on, one of you, none of you. Well, hopefully by the end of this sermon, you'll all raise your hand because that's what grace does. Grace creates in us a disposition to say, you know what, since he's going to heal what he reveals, I want to see my faults because Jesus is going to heal them. I have to do this because this is the only, this scene is, it's not the most appropriate movie, but Liar, Liar, there's that scene when Jim Carrey, who cannot tell a lie for a a window of time, his boss, this lady who liked him and he ignored her or whatever, brings him into a boardroom full of like his, the head of the firm, the law firm, and all these people, and says, tell him what you think of him. Remember that scene? And he can't lie, so he just begins to roast the guy. And, you're there, and he sits there angry. You're like, oh, no, what just happened? And then what does he do? He starts laughing. Ha, ha, that's a good one. Do Simmons. And he walks over and starts roasting Simmons. And pretty soon he's just telling every single person horrible truths about themselves. But they're all laughing. Now, I know it's unrealistic. I know it's a comedy. But just kind of have that in your mindset as we go into our lives. A little more willingness to go, yes, I can see that now. Okay, that's, our, that's what we need to have as we transition. But now we're going to look at how grace not just pursues us, but actually deepens, uh, or excuse me, convinces us of our sin. Um, David, again, I said was unaware. So Nathan has this ploy, this story I'm going to tell you in a moment. But I want to draw your attention to the fact that in verse 7 is the first time Nathan says, thus says the Lord. So it would appear that Nathan, on an errand from God, had some pastoral room to confront. That God didn't tell him exactly every word he would say prior to the thus says the Lord. 
Maybe God gave him a hint. Maybe God actually gave him the exact story. But it's also possible that Nathan was pastoral enough to know, I can't just walk into the king and say, you are sinful. And here's what God says. I need to soften it a little bit. In fact, I need to actually tease David out of his unbelief, of his hardness of heart, right? And he does so with this story because he's pastoral, Nathan is. He knows David well. He knows that he was a shepherd, right? But also he, I think, is wisely maybe fearful for his life. I think one of the mistakes we might make when we read about David is we think he's pretty much like us. He was the king of Israel, and he was a mighty king. And you don't just walk into the king's throne room and tell them about their sin and expect to live. David could have easily had his head chopped off, sent off, and no one would have ever known Nathan existed. So it's risky. So Nathan has to come in very carefully. My guess is it's just as risky to confront you, right? It is me. I remember receiving an email from his Doug Servant and Afterwards, he was like, well, I was just scared to crawl. How do I forget how he even worded it? Just, he just said, I was very frightened to even bring this up because I was afraid of what your heart might do. Not because he knew me to be mean, but because he knows all of us. We know that about each other. If I come into an area of your sin and tell you, I better have like a hazmat suit on. You know, it's got to be very careful. So, so Nathan does it very well. We need to learn to do it well. I also want to make one more point that I thought was brilliant by Eugene Peterson It's shocking that David doesn't know that he's sinned. It's as if he thinks, I'm a good lover. Doesn't realize he had this affair. Well, but you murdered Uriah. I was being a king. Kings do these kind of things. Look at uh, the last chapter 11, verse at the end of 11. It says, uh, and David tells the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. So Joab's delivered the news, Uriah is dead, and here's David's response. The sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen yourself, go on, don't worry. I'm a king, I didn't murder. I'm a lover, I didn't have an affair. He's, he's simply denying the reality, so he needs convincing. So what happens? So Nathan, as you know from the story, tells him, it's hard to tell if David and Nathan had these debates often about law or about trials or things, but he just says, there's a man, and as far as David knows, this is true, who had this sheep, this ewe lamb that he cherished, right? And he raised it, he even fed it, like we have a new puppy, you don't feed the dog from the table. This guy fed it morsels from the table, like they loved this lamb like a daughter. And the rich man who had tons of sheep, right, takes the poor man's sheep. So you know the story. And David is so unaware of his sin, that he can't even see the fact that that's him. I've read that story a million times, and I would have just, I don't know why I would have have said, but I want you to sit on that, that there are sins in your life that are so hidden from your sight that I could begin to tell you a perfect parable, and you would just go right along with me. In fact, probably out of your guilty conscience would be like David, murder that man. He's just out of his mind. First he wants the man dead, but then he wants the man to pay fourfold. It's like, you know. I just want you to rest before we go forward in this thought that, please believe me, you don't know all of your sin patterns. And that scares me from myself. Right? It just frightens me. that There are probably things you could sit down and say, Ryan, I want to talk to you. 
And I have no idea about that in my life. <clears throat> now, it goes even deeper. So grace not only convinces, David's like, you're the man, right? Um, verse 7, you're the man. David realizes it, but he doesn't yet confess. Now Nathan begins to deliver the information from God. And when I read this, um, have you ever said this to yourself or to someone else? Like, I don't even know, I don't know why I need to pray. God knows what I'm going to say already, right? Have you ever thought that? Or why would I confess this sin particularly? God already knows it, yet God wants us to converse with him so that we become aware of what we're praying for and thanking him for and asking for and confessing. How much more profound is it if you heard God in a letter tell you about yourself? You know, I was there when you chose to wear that sweater. You know, you would just be stunned, right? Like, I can't imagine for David what it must have felt like for God to deliver yet again, it happened before, through Nathan. Let me tell you what you should already know. And here's what God says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. And basically, I, I've overseen every aspect of your kingdom. I love you. And he's hearing this through the lens of God. But what's amazing is when God gets to this final point in verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord? So now Nathan, David not only knows I've sinned, he's starting to realize it, but he's doing something that's very important that grace has to do for you in order to grow in your sin and to be healed from it. You have to understand what's happening at the root of your sin. The word despise, it's used twice. You despise me. You despise the word, God says. Um, you hate God when you sin. I mean, I don't, I'm not, that's the craziest thought, isn't it? Like, do you believe that? That when you're in a moment of sin, you are despising God. You're not simply ignoring him, caught up in something else. What's, what's even behind that sin often, what makes it alluring is not even the thing itself. It's the high that you get by running from him, by playing God yourself. You hate him. That's what that word despise means. Dan Allender tells the story um, of a friend of his he was a colleague, and they were visiting, and apparently he offends her, right? This is in his book, Bold Love, which I highly recommend. And he said, uh, he did say some harsh things, like they were joking, but he called her, uh, I was teasing her about her lack, or her lapse of logic, and lack of awareness of time. Okay, he crossed the line. <clears throat> but he goes on to say, <clears throat> that it set off a deep internal earthquake of rage. I was silenced and stunned <clears throat> excuse me, by the intensity of her response. I attempted to talk about what occurred, but her response was stony, cold, injected with occasional sarcastic comments. She wished me harm. Her sarcastic comments were arrows meant to pierce my heart, and her stony silence was a club that attempted to bludgeon me into indifference. <clears throat> he, he has a way with words, but he goes on to say, let me summarize the point of this chapter. Our acknowledged and undealt with commitment to find life apart from 
dependence on God is a form of hatred toward God. Okay? So the reality is, I remember reading that chapter thinking, I don't want to say that I hate God, but you have to agree in your sin, right? In your sin, you are choosing hatred toward God. That doesn't mean you actually, in a belief sense, hate God. You, You are still a Christian. You're still in Christ. But in that moment, you're acting on hatred. And I think you have to believe that to recognize how deep your sin goes. And it's grace that frees you to go there. It's in our passage. You have despised me. We'll look at Psalm 51 next week, but David says, against you and you only have I sinned. I have despised you, God. You want to say, no, no, no. You had an affair. You murdered Uriah. But he's saying that none of that compares to the fact that at its core, I I did not believe in your goodness. I ran from you. I did not take what you gave me as gifts. I went to find my own gift apart from you. I hated you. Does that cheer you up? It should and it shouldn't. Let me tell you why it shouldn't. Because we have a real problem on our hands if this is true. And the problem is, I'm telling you, you may not know where your sin is. That's scary. And secondly, while we engage in our sins, it's far deeper than the outward things we know and think of. It's far deeper. It's something so profound at, at, at its core that it's, it's tantamount to hating God. But here's my test for you. Here's the maturity Christian test for the morning. The mature Christian is the one that can say, yes, that's true. I hate it. I don't want that to be true of me. But yes, I know that's true in my heart. I know that I'm, I'm that vile. But guess what that does? That sets up the stage for healing. That's what we find in our passage. Grace heals, doesn't it? In verse 13, David finally says, I have sinned against the Lord. He confesses his sin. He's so undone, he finally just says it. But I want to draw your attention to what David says, or excuse me, what Nathan says. I hope I haven't been doing that the whole sermon. Have I been transposing Nathan's and David's? Okay, good. So David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, the Lord has also put away your sin, you shall not die. We talked about that last week. Did you hear in that phrase anything along the lines of thus says the Lord? Of course the Lord told Nathan that. Thus says the Lord. It is scripture. It is true. But notice how Nathan seemed to already know that fact. Right? See, he didn't, David didn't have to say those words to be forgiven. He had to say those words to reenter a repentant relationship with his father But Nathan knows David's already forgiven. That's why God sent Nathan to David in the first place. That's what grace shows. The fact that grace is coming into your life, the fact that you're here right now, and this is bothering you, I can see it on your faces, is Jesus' way of saying, I love you. I'm pursuing you. I'm telling you a story. And I want you to hear the story that's in in this passage. Um, It's God's love letter in a way. I anointed you. I want you to go through all the high points of your life. When that good thing happened, I did that. When your eyes were first opened, I'm the one that opened your eyes to me. All these high points, I'm the one God is telling you in a loving way. And you know what? He tells David, if that's not enough, I would have done more. 
I love you. That's what David was hearing. Walter Marshall, who's a a favorite author of mine, at least on one book, The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification, he's a Puritan. He says, The nature of the duties of the law is such as requires an apprehension of our reconciliation with God. In other words, you can't go be a good Christian if you don't know that God loves you and you've been reconciled. He says, in his hearty love and favor towards us is, has to be in our understanding, in our mind. The great duty is to love God with our whole heart. And not such that the philosophers may have uh, thought of when they had written about it, he says, in objects of sciences and other things, but a practical love by which we are willing that God should be absolute Lord and governor of us and all the world. And he says the only way you can have that love for God is if you believe that God has that love for you. Do you trust and rest in God's love? So here's my thought for you guys and for myself. I think everybody in this room that's a Christian would say yes to that question. Yes, God loves me. But practically, what you would probably go on to say is something like this. If you're really honest, it's the other people I'm bothered by. Thanks, God. I know you love me. That's really meaningful. But my boss is kind of a jerk, right? Or my spouse and I just can't get along. Those are whom I want to love me, right? Now, I think even as you hear those words, you begin to see, I hope, that's kind of true. But also that that's not where you should be, right? God's love should matter more. But do you have that tension in your life where, where you want God's love in your head, but really you're after the, what the world offers? And what we call that is unbelief, right? That for the moment, God's love has drifted in its importance. It's not that you doubt it so much, it's that something else has captured the affections of our heart and have wooed us back. Last night we watched oh, uh, this movie I highly recommend, the movie Wonder. Uh, Meredith read it. Coleman had read it in fifth grade, so we watched it. It's really good. It's a really good movie. I think I cried 45 minutes out of the hour and a half or however long. Um, it's about a little boy who was born with horrible birth defects and through countless surgeries is now better healed, but it left with, with a lot of disfiguration in his appearance. And he's around 10 years old, and his mom, played by Julia Roberts, is ready. And this is not going to have a spoiler. That's the, that's his, this is all right there in the trailer. Um, his mom's going to have him go to school. She's been homeschooling him, partly to help him and heal him and be with him, partly to um, protect him from the cruelty of children. And so the, really the movie's about that. It's about him sort of being released into an environment where people are going to attack him and say awful things about his face and about his appearance, which they do. And he, there's this scene, and it's also in the trailer, but in the movie, um, where he's come home, he's weeping, and she's coaching him through this horrible attack he's faced. And she says, you are not ugly, Augie. His name is Augie for Augustus. You are not ugly, And he's crying, and through his tear voice, he says, you have to say that because you're my mother. And she interrupts him. Because I'm your mom, it counts the most. Because I know you the most. And that's what your Father in heaven is telling you. It counts the most. Because I know you the most. 
The love of the world means nothing, but my love means everything. That's what your father is telling you this morning and in this passage through David. And I just want you to, be, I want you to think about the length he went to, that his own son became that lamb. That parable is played out in real time in the person of Jesus who says to you, because the Father loves you so much, I also love you and I will die for you. You are mine. And he does that. When he's delivered before Pilate, fittingly, they say, here's the man. He took your sin on. You are clean. You are free. Nothing that your flesh or this world or Satan tries to convince you of about you that's lies are true. What matters is that your father can look at you and say, I love you and it matters most and heal you. What do you do with that? Well, if that's true, then you can allow people to tell you about areas where you just simply aren't aware. It's not a big deal. Like food in the teeth. Hidden sins. Do you have Nathan in your life? Do you have people who can do that? If you don't, you need to find them, but the way you find them is by stop being so hard to approach, okay? Because of the gospel. And then secondly, and I think as importantly, are you a Nathan to others? I think our culture has become too nice, which is hard for me because I'm not the nicest person, so I'm always looking like a jerk. Help me out here. Um, We're too nice. I really kind of mean that. We're... We're just friendly. And if someone said, do you think this or that about me? Most of us are going to go, no, no. We're terrified to go, yeah, right? But that's what the gospel wants us to do as a community, to be in each other's lives in a loving, careful way, interacting about the ways that we want to grow in grace, right? That's not something that's on the sideline of Christianity. That's a major function. And I, I mean, Nathan saved David. Are you someone who is willing to go and rescue someone else who doesn't understand where they're struggling right now? It can only happen by you, first of all, being the person who can receive that because of the way you trust that your Father loves you. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you for what you've done. By going to the cross, you've parted the waters. And we can now actually look at our own faults. And maybe even laugh, not sarcastically, but knowingly. Maybe weep, but knowing that you're showing us our sin in order to heal us. And healing always begins by seeing it clearly. Will you make us people who hate hypocrisy, Will you make us people who love each other well enough to be honest with each other's lives, but handle them carefully, like Nathan did? Amen.